0: Today's episode of Stats and Stories was recorded last week. This episode focused on the quality of estimates from the U.S. Census. With the Supreme Court decision to end counting in the Census this week, some of the conversation may not apply. However, the discussions related to the impact of an accurate Census count remains. We hope that you'll enjoy this week's episode of Stats and Stories. The U.S. Census Bureau is conducting its annual count of the American population this year. Concerns have emerged about this particular census, and these have included the potential impact of adding a citizenship question, the shortening of the window for the count, the deadline for reports for reapportionment. All of these concerns might translate into miscounts that could impact allocation of federal funds and representation in our legislative branch. The current status of the 2020 census is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist, Richard Campbell, former chair of Miami's Media Journalism and Film Department, Rosemary Pennington is away. Our guest today is Rob Santos. Santos is president-elect of the American Statistical Association and the vice president and chief methodologist at the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization focused on issues of public policy. Thank you so much for being here, Rob.
1: Oh, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor.
0: Uh, Rob, I'd like you to expand a little bit on, on a quote that you you recently had, which was, The nation is best served by securely and effectively Using additional time for U.S. Census Bureau career staff to implement the decennial census as accurately, completely, and fairly as possible. And I they, particularly, I'm interested in the idea of what do you when you say accurate, complete, and fair? Can you help unpack that for us? Uh, certainly. The um, the notion
1: is that you can actually have a census that counts everyone, but is not fair. The fairness comes when you think about the folks uh, in two different buckets, households in two different buckets that participate in the census. The households that are typically those that immediately and willingly respond to a request from the Census Bureau to, you know, it's it's decennial census time. We need to do our civic duty, etc. And then the historically hard-to-count folks and households uh, where they either have uh, some hesitation, they have philosophical issues, or they are in situations that are so dire that they don't have time to think about uh, completing a form, Uh, they may not have internet access, um, and so forth. And it turns out that the things like the Citizenship Issue that came up and subsequent mandate uh, from Department of Commerce and White House to create citizenship counts regardless of whether or not there was a citizenship question in the decennial census, um, as well as uh, other other types of uh, aspects like the the t- there's a pretty toxic uh, immigrant policy uh, in the the federal nation. There are things going on that make it. Uh, so that immigrant households are feeling pretty unwelcome, regardless of whether they are documented or not. Um, Those types of things instill fear. And so if you take the combination of historically uh, recalcitrant households, in addition to folks who are fearful and folks who are in dire circumstances, either at risk of being thrown out of their home because they can't pay rent, um, or because of COVID, they have sick individuals that they're caring for, um, or they it's a family without a job and they're hungry. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. Those combined actually make the hard, the historically hard-to-count households even that much harder to count. And so the, the fairness comes in when you take a look, for example, at the current self-response rates of the, of the census. The Census Bureau right now boasts that there is a 66.7% self-response rate as of October 7th. And actually, from, if, you, if you just think about in 2010, that final rate at the end of the day was 665 So they're doing better in this sense than they did last decennial census. Mm -hmm. However, that masks the fairness story with regard to the hard-to-count populations in the the United States. If you take a state like New Jersey, New Jersey has uh, a 69% uh, self-response rate right now. But look at New York. Newark has a 50% self-response rate. Oh. That's the re- self-response rates are the rates at which households reported for themselves, either by internet, telephone, or mail. Mm. Um, and why does that matter? Because, you know, the census is, na- is now boasting a 99% completion rate. Um, it matters because the, um, there's a very clear connection through Census Bureau's own research between the rate of self-response and the risk of being undercounted as a population. Oh. And, okay. uh, and yeah, sure, uh, the Census Bureau at the end of the day, whether it was September 30th, which now passed, or this October 31st, will declare victory with a 99.9% completion of all states. But all that means is that they brought to final disposition at their... Uh, counting activities and those counting activities will rely heavily on going to neighbors and asking neighbors who lives at the house next door or across the street or, or landlords who lives in you know in these apartments that never responded and you'll end up getting guesses and sometimes the guesses are only um someone's a neighbor's perception of how many people live in the household
0: oh boy and
1: guess what with covid covid if if you recall correctly caused a really significant change in household compositions and where people lived because when the initial lockdown occurred there was a scramble i mean people from new york state of new york and new york city got out of there faster than anybody's business. Sure. So it's re- and then they stayed away. Uh, I mean, I myself have a, a nephew who left almost immediately and is still in the state of Texas, my home state.
2: Hey, Rob, you wrote on your blog back in March about the idea of postponing the census um, when COVID hit. Way
1: before it actually got postponed, by the way. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> so I, I guess I just want to hear more about Uh, the effect of COVID. I'm just imagining going to households and trying to get people to answer the door, even with masked people, you know, trying to get a response.
1: That is uh, definitely an issue. And uh, I actually am a member of uh, one of the uh, Census Bureau's community Facebook pages that features individuals, uh, individual field members who are Mm -hmm. out there, and uh, it's pretty clear that the wearing of the mask had an, a negative impact on uh, the willingness of people answering the door. There were countless stories about people saying, stay away, or that they uh, the field person would knock and knock and knock with the lights on in the house and seeing people walking around, but nobody would answer the, uh, answer the, uh, the door. And, you know, you don't blame them. I mean, we have... People's lives are at stake here, um, where we uh, are only learning now what the most effective ways to social distance uh, are, as well as the efficacy of wearing masks. Um, And uh, that information is not uniformly held by the population. So you have individuals with their preconceived notions that I don't care who comes, I'm not answering the door. And that's especially true for uh, households among the hard to count that include um, uh, communities, people in communities of color, people who are renters and who are at risk of getting, you know, getting thrown out because they haven't paid rent. You know, it could be somebody with the mask and a badge on, but they're not going to look to see what the badge says. It could be the sheriff with the eviction notice. There are a lot of things going on, a lot of things to unpack, In that.
2: Yeah, sure. Um,
1: But I did want to circle back around and close out the thought with regard to the fairness issue and the completeness issue. That the completeness issue is that because the Census Bureau goes to extraordinary lengths with their field workers to at least get the number of people in a house that they think is occupied, there's a chance that they could come close, although I have my doubts they could come close to, say, an overall state population. However, because of the self-response rate issues that communities of color and impoverished neighborhoods tend to, to have a much, much lower response rate than the bedroom communities that have response rates in the 70s versus, you know, communities of color that could be in the 40s, you have a really big risk of the suburban neighborhoods, the middle-class neighborhoods, the higher-income neighborhoods being counted accurately or overcounted, and the communities of color, the communities at most risk of COVID, eviction, hunger, being undercounted. And when that situation arises, even if you have a ballpark good estimate of a state, within the state, you have a, an unfair uh, accuracy in the count and what that means because we have a zero-sum gain in the 1.5 million dollars or trillion dollars that uh that are that are dispersed a good chunk of that comes in forms of block grants to states states then decide hey we're gonna release that money to communities on the basis of their population it kind of makes sense right yeah sure. sure however if you have a uh, communities that are accurately or overcounted versus communities that are undercounted because of the zero one zero zero sum game some communities will get way more than they deserve while other communities will get way less and that's the nature of the unfairness and something that, that really needs to be highlighted and of concern with this particular census because i believe that that the the those inequities uh, will manifest themselves significantly this round uh, in 2020 relative to any of the other censuses. Yeah. And unfortunately, that situation will be baked in for the next 10 years because the Census Bureau and the way we operate uses the decennial census as the benchmark or the starting point for the next 10 years of population projections. And things like the American Community Survey, the current population uh, survey that estimates unemployment, uh, community uh, community, uh, or the uh, consumer expenditure surveys that's used for the CPI, all those rely on good population estimates to to accurately calibrate where population is within states and across states and within subgroups. And uh, population demographic subgroup like African Americans, Latinx, uh, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and so forth—the uh, the, hard to count individuals or communities—and it's all going to compound uh, to lead to a continued um, inequitable distribution of resources as well as political representation uh, for the next ten years.
0: You you know Rob this this seems like some uh, um, something that was really unexpected associated with a pandemic, <laughs> you know that you know we don't we don't you know you don't think about kind of the the, the cascading of impacts, uh, you know and and as you were describing this and thinking about you know people going out the the follow up for the census workers and and just how much this changes the game from the the, the last ten year exercise, wow I, this this pandemic's impact is it's not just you know, us us currently doing uh, podcast interviews from home. This is this is changing the the lives and and the impact on this country for the next ten years in a dramatic way. And
1: uh, also, unfortunately, there is a there is a policy component to the quality issue in the census counts by having um, repeated uncertainty on the length of the field period and. Uh, and the submission dates of the counts, um, that basically threw a wrench into census operations. So uh, initially, uh, there was uh, a plan to continue uh, the, the, uh, the field work through October, then have the due diligence of a full set of processing and quality checks by the Census Bureau with all their data that they collected, and then a submission of counts in April. but um, By the, by the uh, White House uh, requiring a submission in, at the end of December, that threw the initial wrench into the operation. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the Census Bureau had to scramble and decide where are they gonna cut quality? <laughs> oh, where are they thought. gonna cut the due diligence that they normally do? And that meant a condensed field period with a field staff that was already lower than they expected to have. Uh-huh. Because when COVID hit, the, the typical types of employees, which were retirees and things of that sort, were at high risk and they didn't want right. to have anything to do with field work going out in such uh-huh. uncertain times. Sure. Um, so there was less of a field work. They had to rejigger the operations and uh start planning for the december uh the december submission which meant uh for them uh the an end of december uh uh end to, to field uh data collection however then came the injunction by the by the judge and that threw another wrench into the operations <laughs> so i mean imagine imagine you trying to do your work uh and you know just even doing a statistical analysis this is stats and stories you know you plan out your your analysis time you're doing it what if somebody walked in the door and said no you need to be done tomorrow not you know in three weeks or in a couple of weeks you just go haywire you'd start doing stuff and then they walk in the door and say no no it's okay it'll it can go back to you know next week and then you, you re, breathe a sigh of relief. You start replanning what you had originally done. And then there's another injunction. Oh, okay, man. now it's back to, it's October 5th instead of oh, October man. 31st. And so there, the career staff were just, uh, I would imagine and I fully expect were just pulling out their hair, trying to decide, okay, what do we need? What's our due date? What do we need to plan for? And the real unfortunate thing is that people don't realize the importance of the post-processing that has to be done to identify duplicates, to to do reality checks. I mean, they're barely able to do a laugh test to look at the counts Um. for certain cities and communities, um, because a lot of that has to go out the door in order to get a count out. And so there are a lot of sacrifices being made that will impact directly the quality of the census, which is why We need some good quality metrics uh, posted as quickly and expeditiously as possible by the Census Bureau, and we're hoping and praying that they will do that in in quick order.
0: All right. So you're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Rob Santos, President Elect of the American Statistical Association and Vice President of the Urban Institute.
2: Rob, I'd like to switch gears a little bit here and uh, talk about the election. We're about a month away. Uh, as we do this podcast, and you wrote an op-ed piece in 2016 about some of the bad data or the bad statistics that came out of some of the uh, the states where the election was really close, and uh, and I think the overall election was within the margin of error. Hillary Clinton, I think, won by two percentage points. That was within the margin of error. But some of these states, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, I think, surprised a lot of people. And uh, uh, could we sort of return to that topic? And are are the data that we're seeing now, as Biden seems to be widening his lead in these states, is this something we can trust? Or is there going to be another surprise?
1: Uh, There very well could be another surprise. The story, you know, it's not over till it's over. I will say uh, on reflection, uh, based on the assessments that were done uh, by uh, a task force sponsored by the Association uh, for Public Opinion Research, APOR, of which many American Stat Association members are also members of that association and participated in that task force, that um, the, the general assessment was that last time around, the Political polls weren't all that bad. There were a couple of really bad ones in the toss of states. Um, uh, had uh, a couple of pretty uh, uh, poorly performing uh, polls um, this time around. But on the whole, uh, last time around, the polls were pretty pretty well accurate and within margin of error, and that, and that's fine. This time around, so much has changed. Well, for the for the for the first. Uh, you know, sort of uh, swath at this whole issue, um, the polling organizations are doubling down on their rigor and mm. you know, making sure that they're doing things uh, you know as best that they, that they can. Uh, I, th- I believe even in Gallup uh, had this uh, ginormous, very transparent uh, assessment of its polls because uh, it had gotten some things wrong. And, um, and so... This time around, people are really doing their due diligence. Having said that, life as we know it has changed. And it's changed uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, The first of which is is COVID and the whole nature of what it is that constitutes a likely voter. You know, a lot of of times uh, people like to say, and it's really true, that polls are a snapshot of a point in time. And you've got to be really careful about whether you're talking about what do people think, what do adults think, or what do the people that are going to present at the polls think. Yeah. So there's sort of general population polling, there's registered voting polling, and then there are the folks that like to uh, to sort of play roulette, <laughs> uh, the folks that like to predict who are the likely voters. And covid has changed society in such a way that we have to be really careful about the likely voter models because there are different types of individuals. Uh, There may be folks who would routinely vote, but they are not going to do so if they are required to go out to a polling location because they do not want to risk catching COVID. Uh, There are folks that uh, will totally embrace mail-in voting if they are allowed to have that option.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so there's this whole mixture of confounding factors that go into the likely voter models um, that I think that, that that is the source of me saying, you know it could it could go anyway. Uh, so I, I'd say what I said back then, sit back and enjoy the ride, do your (laughs) due diligence, um, understand the data for what they are, snapshots and predictions that are subject to error, and know that there are a lot of assumptions that go into deciding who's a likely voter, many of which we cannot measure. We don't know what the impact of COVID is going to be, because there hasn't been, really, a lot of elections between the time COVID hit and now. And the nature of COVID and how it's affecting society is changing on a day to day basis as we learn how to deal uh, with the epidemic uh, each each progressive day.
0: You know that's that sort of takes me back to some of the comments you were making about the census and too as well. Just you know the census had no idea they were going to be trying to execute this in a pandemic. You know that's not you know all those years of planning in some ways went out the window. Uh, you know one of the things that I wonder about elections just to follow up on on Richard's question. You know, even if it says that there's a 70% chance of some outcome, you know, a 30% chance is still pretty big, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you told me this bridge I'm going to drive on has a 30% chance of falling, I think I'd pick a different bridge. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, it's just this idea that, that, that we, we seem to, to always want round, to round anything above a half to one and i i just how do we how do we tell this story rob in a way that that people can appreciate that this uncertainty and the fact that that you know these probabilities these proportions that are being reported they're not zero or one and
1: and in fact if they if you come out with the 70% versus 30% you have to understand that in many ways it's subjective it relies on somebody's model statistical model of who's going to vote and the underlying assumptions of that model may or may not be true or they may be true today but in two weeks something's going to happen like uh, i would hate for it to happen but a resurgence uh you know hot spots all over the country that could fundamentally change the uh the outcome of the of the of the election and their performance the predictive performance of the of the polling. So we just have to keep all of that uncertainty in mind. You know, people live with uncertainty all the time. Uh, and it's it's curious why we would want to apply a different measure of uncertainty to political polling and say, oh, it's 70% and it didn't happen this time around, so polls are bad. When in fact, we live with uncertainty every day. There are the poor individuals um, who have to go to the doc and they get uh, MRIs or biopsies or whatever. And uh, basically the doc will tell them, you know, the prognosis is X, Y, Z. It could be six months, three months, or we have a treatment and we believe it's going to be effective. But there's a 10% chance that it isn't. People live with those uncertainties and they they have life and death meanings. Um, Elections, uh, well, some would argue that there's a life and death (laughs) um, issue here. But um, in general, the elections don't have those types of consequences. Yet people want a level of uncertainty. Same thing with hurricanes. You look at all those hurricane models; they go all over the place. And there's there's typically a couple that tend to, to be uh, more predictive uh, than others. But anything can happen with a hurricane. It can strike anywhere. And we've seen that, even this season, that it's predicted to go one way and it goes another. We live with that uncertainty. Uncertainty's all around us. We should accept it, understand it, and, uh, and be prepared to deal with whatever the outcome is.
2: I heard uh, Nate Silver I think at the end of in 2016, he used a, a football metaphor: of kickers have a 70 percent chance of making a field goal. Well, they often will miss. They have a 30 percent chance of missing, yeah. and that's that's how we should think about it. It's there's some uh, there's a chance, the good chance that someone will win, but there's also a pretty good chance that we'll miss. <laughs> you know, and uh, and that's certainly what happened in 2016.
0: Well, you know, or, or something happened that wasn't the, the, the larger probability. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's <laughs> to look at it, to the extent that
1: uh, chances, uh, you know, th- these predictive probabilities aren't 99 versus 1 and instead are 70, 30 or 50, mm-hmm. 50 or whatever, that should instill uh, the importance and urgency of doing your civic duty. And so for no other reason, it should say we need to act, we need to vote, we need to do what we, what we can to make a difference.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of, uh, of Stats and Stories. Rob, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks, Rob. It
0: was, it was a delight. Let's do it again. I, well, we'd love to. So, so Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, and other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.